0: Mm-hmm. Is it on? Yes. I knew the moment you gave me a thumbs up that the microphone was on. <laughs> That's how in sync we are. Okay. When I ask a question and you respond, I know the answer. It's crazy. It's crazy. Not everyone has that. But I do with my senior producer, Hans Buto. I'm Nora McInerney, and this is Terrible. Thanks for asking. Um, Show of hands, who has been to cognitive behavioral therapy? My hand just went up. If you have not gone, I mean, I've really loved it. I've loved it. And one of the things, there's also, by the way, lots of different kinds of therapy. This is just one option, but one of the things your therapist may mention or may have mentioned is both and thinking. That's both slash and thinking. It's something that is kind of hard to practice because it does mean that two things can be true at once. And that's hard because when you're mad at someone, you want the whole world to agree that they are garbage when the truth is that they are garbage to you and also probably pretty decent to other people. That's just a casual example from my own life and therapy, not naming names. Life is a constant exercise in both and thinking. And if the concept had been introduced to me just a little earlier, like a decade or two, I would have been able to save a lot of heartache. I was inadvertently practicing both and thinking for years, starting with when my husband, Aaron, was diagnosed with brain cancer. Before that, I thought things were either good or bad, that I was either good or bad, that life was basically just a series of yes or no questions. No multiple choice, no essays, which is a shame because I can tell you right now in 500 to 1,000 words, single-spaced, normal margins with footnotes, I rock an essay question. When my husband Aaron got sick with brain cancer, life was hard and beautiful. Cancer wasn't our entire life. It was just a part of our life, and between the chemo and the brain surgeries and the radiation, we had a really fun life. It was all just mixed together. I really, truly, I looked forward to going to the hospital with Aaron when he would stay the night, because, and we'd consistently, by the way, call it the hotel. Like, oh God, we gotta get, you know, we gotta get to the hotel tonight. Oop, no, I mean, Not because it was, like, a very well-appointed space. Blankets were the same. Same, you know, facial soap, quote-unquote, that would strip your skin of all moisture. Same awful lighting. But anywhere I went with him was fun, even if he was getting an IV of poison to kill his brain cancer. One night we were at home at our house and we were in our room, and he like hit me in the arm pretty like a whack, like boom. And, dude, what that hurt. And he looked at me and then looked at his arm, and we both realized his arm was moving on its own. It was just a seizure was coming that's we knew. And he shouted, I'm going down. And I wrestled him onto the bed, except I didn't fully get him on there. And then he fell. He like, we toppled sort of onto the ground, but I got his head like a champ. And when the seizure was over, he was delirious and exhausted and like came back into his body and his eyes opened. And he looked at me and he said, You fucking weakling. And I laughed so hard, I almost threw up. He described me as a giraffe on roller (laughs) skates. He was like, I weigh less than you, and you couldn't get me onto a bed that was, you just had to push me onto it. I'm like, well, yeah, but you were pretty slippery. Anyways, I laughed. It was one of the most horrifying things I had ever seen, and he still made me laugh. And later that night, I cried in the shower so he wouldn't hear me. This entire podcast is an exercise in both and thinking. Our guest stories, like my story or your story, is never just sad or just terrible, just grueling. I mean, they often are sad and terrible and grueling, but never just that. There are silver linings and moments of levity. There are little lights in the darkness. And your happy times, your best stories... Are they always just happy? Or are there undercurrents to everything? Light casts a shadow. When you're down, it's hard to see the light. When you're up, it's uncomfortable to see the darkness. But both things can be true. Both can and do exist at once all around us. When Aaron died, I was so sad isn't enough of a word. I was... I was, like, demolished. I was so grateful for the love we had, but it was really hard to access the and part. It was one or the other. It was destroyed or grateful. It was grateful or dead inside. It was one thing or the other from day to day or moment to moment. And falling in love again with my current husband, Matthew, while I was still so sad about Aaron, I have said it before and I'll say it again, it was hard and complicated, but mostly because I made it that way. I was sure that both could not exist at once. That there was no and in the equation. I was falling in love with Matthew, so what about Aaron? I was sad about Aaron, so what about Matthew? My mind had refused to recognize that they coexisted already and always would. My mind tried to force them to turn against one another. And some days my mind still does. Self-awareness is not a final destination, at least not in my very limited experience. It's a state of being we climb towards and slip away from. There are days when we look at ourselves, our lives, the people around us, and we just get it. Someone cuts us off in traffic and we're like, oh well, get in there, buddy. I wish you well on your journey. I recognize we are all just a pile of Sentient insecurities wandering this earth in search of understanding and comfort and shaving two minutes off our commute. Go in peace. And there are also days when we're like, you know what? Fudge you. Fudge this place. Everyone in it. All this is wrong. I'm wrong. You're wrong. They're wrong. This is wrong. That's wrong. I made a list of all the things that are wrong. Guess what's on it? Everything. Would you like to see the list? Yeah, you're on it. You're on it. Yeah, you. And me too. Right at the top. There are probably days in the middle too, but who remembers those? Boring. Like who remembers a day when you're like, oh, yeah, "I was pretty, pretty okay." Probably a five. The point, and I think I do have one. Hans Buto, senior producer, making eye contact with me, is that we all benefit from a little empathy stretch from listening to the stories of others and also listening to our own with a little objectivity. We benefit from taking that empathy we give other people on our best days and stretching it over ourselves, from taking the time to say that just like everyone around us, we are doing our best and could probably do better. That we are happy and struggling, that we are struggling and grateful, that we are hopeless and know we won't always feel this way, that two things can be true and usually are, and it can be true that we are going away and coming right back after the break. We are back with an essay from my forthcoming book, No Happy Endings. This is this is a chapter I wrote, and I'm going to read it to you. It's like a little bonus for you. People always imply that being with me must be hard for Matthew. They start out with a weird semi-compliment, like, Oh, he's a saint. What a good guy. And then they segue quickly into the casual... So, how does he deal with it? It, of course, being my dead husband. I imagine that they're thinking Matthew is jealous of the love I had before and that he's uncomfortable with my grief. Bitter over his second-place finish in the competition of who Nora loves most. He's not. He's not in second place, though people assume that he's a runner-up. And he's not uncomfortable with my grief. Trust me, I ask him all the time. And I always know when he's lying because he is painfully honest. And even when he, when you can tell he's even thinking about possibly being less than truthful, his whole body tenses up. And I'm like, dude, come on. One night when Matthew and I were talking, I said... I feel really guilty sometimes. Periodically, I respond to a loving gesture from Matthew by reminding him that I am still in love with Aaron. And I'm not just reminding him, I'm reminding myself. It's a reflex, this automatic defense of Aaron and of my life with him. That particular night, Matthew had put a record on my record player. I looked at it, and I said, Aaron gave that to me, that whole box set, actually. He gave it to me for no reason. He just knew that I like bright eyes, and he got me every single record. And I said this in a way that was more accusatory than informative. Matthew responded with more kindness than I probably would have, but I could tell I had not improved the mood in the house. When the record stopped playing, he didn't turn it over. My admission of guilt felt like I was confessing to a crime I'd been carrying around for decades, not just a year or so. Same, Matthew had replied. Matthew feels sad that Aaron is dead, and sad that Ralph lost his father, and sad that I lost my husband, and Maymay lost her son, and Nikki lost her brother. He feels lucky he found me. Lucky to be in Ralph's life. Lucky to have four kids who are happy and healthy, knock on wood. We are both trying to find our footing in this new life we built. And we both know that we built this life with the wreckage of our old ones. Matthew's old life lives just a half mile from us. We see her at soccer games, and our relationship could be categorized... I mean... Anywhere between complicated and next question, please? Nobody tells me that I'm a saint for being with Matthew or for raising his children with him. Whatever the fairy tales told us about being rescued by a man was false. Women have always been our own heroes. I'm going to dig into some Disney here. So, think about it. Beast needed Belle in order to turn back into a human man. Which was also a mistake because he was hotter as a beast? And I'm not the only person who thinks that. There are dozens of us. Prince Eric? He would have drowned at sea if it weren't for Ariel. We rescue broken guys like they're stray dogs. We love them for the fact that they're missing an eyeball or only have three legs. Senior producer Hans Buto has indicated I might be taking the rescue dog, rescue man analogy too far, or at least into some unclear territory, but there it is. And Matthew, by the way, is a saint, and he is a good guy, but not because he dared to enter a relationship with me. He's a good guy because he's principled in everything he does, honestly, to an annoying degree. He loves me, and he loves Aaron he has to love Aaron. Aaron is why he has me. Not just because Aaron died, although not having a living husband did make it easier to date Matthew, but because Aaron's love and Aaron's death created the Nora I am now. On my best life days, that's capital B, capital L, best life, I feel so grateful for a beating heart and a functional body that nothing else could possibly matter. But anyone who lives a hundred percent in their best life mode is either Oprah or end of list. Done. Many days I'm not so sure about this Nora. The other Nora, who was married to Erin, she was awesome. This okay, she ruled. She could throw a baby shower while nursing a baby and a sick husband, and she did. She could host brunch every Sunday and manage a chemo schedule. She, this is nuts, made her own granola bars because she didn't want her husband, who had stage 4 cancer, to maybe get more cancer from an unknown cancer-causing additive in a mass-market granola bar. And then she wrapped them in wax paper so that they would never touch Plastic. She was doing fine. She took things too far. (laughs) But she showed up dressed and made up for everything from brain surgery to baptisms. The version of me that Matthew got is slower and messier. She recently put a bag of McDonald's in the oven to keep it warm for dinner and it lit on fire. (laughs) And no one in the family was surprised about that. She is currently recording this with hair that should have been washed two days ago. This Nora is fine, I guess. I've worried since I met Matthew that there's just nothing in this relationship for him. What does he get out of being with this second-rate version of me? Ernest Hemingway wrote, The world breaks everyone, and afterward, many are stronger in the broken places. I like that quote. I feel like I've used it in the podcast before. I have. Hans is nodding. And the world does break everyone. That's a guarantee. It breaks everyone and everything. Families are snapped apart by death, money, drugs, divorce. The wrong thing said at the wrong time to the wrong sibling who is never going to let it go. Many of us are stronger at the broken places, and many of us are just broken. But it's not like you'd ever know it. We're experts at hiding our broken parts. We love to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We absolutely insist that whatever didn't kill us made us stronger, even if it's all we can do to get ourselves out of bed in the morning. The broken places are scary, so we cover them up with big smiles and expensive handbags and well-lit Instagram posts. Finding real, lasting, big romantic love is a miracle. Think of all the people in the world. Right off the bat, most are dumb or annoying. Okay, so you just wiped out. Now there's fewer. Now, the ones who aren't dumb or annoying might not be in your age range or live on your continent, may not speak your language, may not be single. The fact of finding a person you can love and be loved by is a truly remarkable event. And if you are in love right now, pause this, turn to your loved one, call them on the phone, send them a text, or if you're listening to this in the future and you are a hologram, pop into their brain and say, I am. I'm so glad I found you. Our holiday cards went out in late January. They feature gorgeous photographs of our beaming children, my current husband and me sitting in the grass after our backyard wedding, We chose a selection of pictures, not because it was hard to choose, although our friend Nicole did take a lot of beautiful photos, but because we didn't get a photo of all of us together, not one. The cards we send out remind the recipient of our children's names and ages and wish them a happy non-denominational holiday season. They do not tell you that this beautiful family of ours was built from the parts of other families. But that's how we got here on this holiday card that I didn't get around to mailing until well after any related holiday. And even though I sometimes think Matthew got a pretty downmarket version of me, he's into this Nora. He thinks she's great. He agreed to spend the rest of his life with her. He has very low standards. Of course, we are lucky, both of us. We are lucky to have come through with broken parts, to have survived. We are lucky to have found each other even though all of that luck is tinged with a little bit of sadness. We both know it and we both need reminding sometimes. Sometimes we need the other person to flip the record over or to change it entirely. Sometimes, if I squint hard enough, I can see or start to see what Matthew sees in me. I, I'm gonna text him. Do you want me to text him? He's at work. He'll answer. Oh, my phone's in my butt. L O L. Quick question What do you see in me? Okay, this is not a trap. Okay, CBDFL text back. We'll check. We'll check periodically. (sighs) What I think Matthew sees is that I have been in love like this before and that I know what it means to promise till death do us part and to follow through on that promise. Anyone can do that, but I'm willing to do it twice. This new family of ours is not a consolation prize for what I lost, but it consoles me. When Ralph was almost five, he drew a photo at school. Each person was basically just a collection of circles and lines in different sizes, but his teacher labeled each of these little amoebas. Mama, dad, dad, brother, brother, sister. Strangers often tell Sophie that she looks just like me, and her face freezes somewhere between, that's not my mom, and thanks? Christmas comes, and no matter where the big kids spend it, they're leaving their family to be with their family. These four kids of ours know that love has real power, but it is not all-powerful. Our family crest, if we had one, would be six broken hearts with a tattered banner beneath it. I think it would read sad and lucky. Matthew texted me back. Okay. (laughs) I mean, it feels like a trap. Definitely feels like a trap, especially since you said it's not a trap. You're smart. You're funny. You're extremely talented and good at what you do. Do you agree? (laughs) Hans validate me. I love your laugh. You're beautiful. That doesn't hurt. I like making you smile. That's the feeling that nothing else matters when you lay your head on my chest. He's so sweet. (laughs) This was a trap. It was a trap. What if you would have been like, "Hmm?" I trapped him. I mean, any compliment I get, I automatically am like, false. <laughs> <laughs> Therapy, man. Um, it's sweet. I know it's true. You know? And those are also, like... Those are also things Aaron liked about me. Like, those are things that I know are are important to Matthew. Like, he doesn't make me laugh very often <laughs> because... <laughs> he's like the... He's a straight man, okay? And so I'm the goofball and so it is. Honestly, it's a treat for me when he makes me laugh. I'm always like, oh, "Good job. That was great. That was a good one." Yeah. I don't know. I feel lucky. I feel lucky. I do. I feel lucky. hot tip, text <laughs> text the person you're with, what do you see in me? This is not a trap. They will know it's not a trap. And then you call me and you leave me a voicemail of what they said. That's it. I love other people's love. Share more of that with me. Break. BRB. We are back. So aside from trying and struggling with both and thinking, I am a natural born warrior. Like, I don't want to get a DNA test because I value just only that aspect of my privacy, basically. I'm like, oh, you can't have my DNA. But if I got a DNA test, I bet it would be like, wow, look at this warrior gene. It's so strong. It's plump with anxiety. Anxiety Anxiety-driven hypothetical futures. It's so, it's overtaking everything. I don't know how genes work or what they look like, but I do respect science and my genetic privacy. (laughs) If you are an anxious person, also known as basically any person who has a brain, you spend a lot of time on hypotheticals. And personally, one of my favorite hobbies is laying awake in bed going over imaginary scenarios. Like, I will play out entire conversations in my head. And that's not just a straight-up conversation. I then... Spin out alternate endings to every potential iteration of any human interaction that seems like it could be slightly stressful. If I have the time, and I usually do, I'll even revisit some of my worst moments just to see how I'd get it right if I were ever given the chance to live them all over again. I never spend any time reworking the good parts of life or even getting to a good conclusion for a potential scenario. I lay in bed thinking, not of the best that could happen but of the worst possible outcome. I do this because I like it. I like that anxious feeling that spreads from my core outward. The way it makes my heart race and the feeling I'm describing is the release of the stress hormone cortisol, which is not healthy and I believe is best used or at least intended for real-life situations, like a stranger grabbing your foot from where he's hiding under your car in the dark parking ramp, good luck getting your car tonight, because <laughs> then he pulls you underneath to murder you, but you're under the car. No one sees, right? You'd need cortisol for that. It's not meant for situations you've cooked up in your imagination because you're addicted to stress. You're not supposed to like this feeling. You're supposed to like the opposite of this feeling, which is living in the moment. It isn't my fault, though. I was born too stressed because I was born stressed. I was three weeks late. I was born in a snowstorm so bad that I nearly popped out of my mom while a fire truck drove her haltingly through the streets of Minneapolis. I did make it out at the hospital, but I had aspirated meconium during the delivery, which is a fancy medical way of saying I was born eating my own crap. She's very stressed, the doctor had told my mother, unwittingly setting the tone for my entire life. This meant days in the NICU surrounded by babies who weighed less than a third of my ten-and-a-half-pound, two-foot-long physique. I was surrounded by worriers. Parents who weren't sure that their child would survive. Parents who were kind of embarrassed to tell the parents with legitimate worries that their baby just swallowed some poop but would be fine. My father, who spent more than my entire lifetime in recovery for alcohol addiction, was not one to suffer these worries. I would tell him a worry. I would start something like, what if, what if... And he would say, Nora, what if the moon were blue? And I would blink at him like a broken baby doll because rhetorical questions posed to a child are kind of pointless. Now I realize my father wasn't dropping these pearls of wisdom in front of his swine children so that we'd be wise children. But so we could pack them up for the future and hopefully become wiser adults. He was playing the long game. Thank you, Dad. If the moon were blue, it would be blue. So what? But the moon is not blue. So what? His confusing question was a guidepost for adult life, ruminating on what may or may not be is nothing but a waste of what is. But... I was a worried child who grew up into a worried adult who became friends with other worried adults. I've spent a lot of friendship time doing what essentially amounts to trading worries back and forth, like baseball cards. The common ones we throw out on the table immediately work challenges, dating quandaries. Those are a dime a dozen. As the friendship progresses, we will reveal some rarer gems. Childhood traumas, deep-seated self-image issues... As an exercise, recently I've started forcing myself to write out these things, these worries. In a notebook, I will take a worry and divide the page in two. On the left, what's the worst that could happen? On the right, what's the best that could happen? Later, I'll revisit that particular worry and see what thoughts actually came to be. My worst-case scenarios have never been represented in that final tally. My best-case scenarios don't have a perfect record, but they feel a lot better to think about. The truth of the situation is always somewhere in the middle. Imperfect, but doable, livable. ¶¶ This summer, my friend Chelsea and I lay in the sun at the public pool. We were the only adults there without children. That was on purpose. And we were doing what we do. We were trading our worries back and forth, exploring the worst of what could happen. The guy she liked could turn out to be no good or to be very good but not actually interested in her. She could be setting herself up for another heartbreak by going on a date with him. And, I mean, anything could happen with my family. It could implode. We could ruin it and then ruin our children's lives again. It was a very uplifting conversation. I'm sure it inspired any children around us to look forward to being an adult. Meanwhile, outside of our cloud of anxiety, the sun was shining in a brilliant blue sky. We get those rarely in Minnesota our summers are a rare and precious season, which lasts anywhere from six hours to 17 days. This was a valuable time to absorb some vitamin D, a time to ride the water slide, to drink bright red slushies until our teeth were pink. Chelsea and I were alive, gloriously alive. Our skin still had a decent amount of collagen. Our butts had not yet begun their horizontal spread. We were slathered in SPF 80, and as far as I could tell, our lives had turned out pretty okay since we'd met, uh, you know, in our early to mid, mid to late, in our 20s. Chelsea and I met um, the way you meet all your friends, right? Through your mom. It was a blind friend date that my mom had set up um, when I had moved back home and she was concerned about my lack of ability to make friends. I had moved back home to Minneapolis and moved in my parents and I thought that the situation was mutually enjoyable. thought like, you know, I'm bringing some light to their older years. They're giving me a house and paying the bills. <laughs> but... It was, it was only enjoyable for me. <laughs> I was a third wheel and my parents didn't need me along. It turns out for every movie or every dinner out and they really needed me to make a friend. And so my mom picked Chelsea because she was quirky and had cool glasses, she was super colorful. And the agreement was we'd meet for one drink. Just like a real blind date, each of us had a pre-planned exit strategy. You know, like If there's no chemistry between you, you could be like, oh yeah, I have another thing. So we each said we had another thing, but we never went to that thing. We just stayed together at this shitty bar for hours. And when we left, we made plans, like solid plans to see each other again. Chelsea was there the night that I met Aaron, and she stood up with us at our wedding She poured me into bed after his funeral. She woke me up the next day for what will always be the worst hangover of my life. Chelsea and I could have never prepared for the hard things we went through and could never imagine the good things that came our way. And even when those good things did happen, we didn't actually enjoy them. We were always waiting for the other shoe to drop for things to be as awful as they had been in the past or could be in the future. That day by the pool, I had been widowed, but I'd also published a book and started a nonprofit and a podcast. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. (laughs) Get it? (laughs) And I'd found love again, and Chelsea was single, and she'd lived in two beautiful cities, and she'd had an amazing career, and she'd moved back to Minnesota to be closer to her friends and family. And why hadn't we spent any of our long conversation talking about those good things? Why hadn't any of those crossed our mind? And what were we thinking playing through worst case scenarios when the concession stand had cheese fries and the radio was tuned to the oldies station, which at my current age means that they're playing hits from like grades, sometimes high school. Sometimes my like it's we gotta redefine oldies. I want hits from the fifties and sixties, full stop. That's it. Those are oldies. Everything else happens to be older, but it's not an oldie. Whole different podcast. Anyway, Chelsea and I had already finished this discussion of everything that could go wrong with the new guy she was messaging and everything that could go wrong with my relationship with Matthew. And Chelsea started talking about a new job opportunity and why it may not be a great idea to take it. And I interrupted her and I asked her, "What's the best that could happen?" And we were both quiet for a while just staring at the sky. Chelsea and I aren't the kind of people you'd think of as like inherently negative. We're decently happy, we're pretty fun. Our negativity is always or almost always focused on the hypothetical. Because thinking of the worst-case scenario feels like emotional insurance. You've already paid a decent premium, so the maximum out-of-pocket devastation cost will seem reasonable once everything falls apart. Kind of seems like a smart habit. Like, if you push the bruise enough, you'll never be surprised at how much it hurts when you walk into the coffee table. Thinking of the best that could happen feels too dangerous. Let your hopes get too high and you'll have all the more height to fall from. What a what a fun way to live. <laughs> like imagine telling our children, aim for the bottom. Like, aim for the bottom, because if you fail, I mean you can't fall. You can't fail, you can't fail, you can't fall. Lesson here, my beautiful child, don't try. That's what we're saying to ourselves when we refuse any option but the worst case scenario. We are saying, hey, self. Keep your expectations low. Do not reach for the stars they've actually already burned out, so they're just a trick of space and time. Reach for something you can already touch, something not hot. It's much safer. If you'd asked me when Aaron was sick with brain cancer, what's the best that could happen, I would say uh, his incurable cancer is cured. I knew that wasn't possible, so I didn't let myself think it. If you'd asked me when Aaron was sick with brain cancer, what's the worst that could happen? I'd have said, he's gonna die. The best that could happen, did happen. Aaron wasn't cured, but Aaron was born an American male who grew up and went to college and got a job with good insurance and worked for a company that gave a rip about him. So when he needed brain surgery, he got it. When he needed chemo, radiation, a haircut, a new pair of shoes, he got it. When we wanted to start a family, science made it possible, and so did money. When he died and we were in financial ruin, the internet made us a fundraiser, and it helped what was left of our family. It helped me and Ralph survive. I was wrong about the worst case scenario. Not that Aaron would die. He would absolutely die. He did die. But that's not really the worst that could happen. Everyone dies. Some people die lonely. Some people die after living a life they hated, that they never intended to live. Some people die mired in worry and regret. The worst that can happen is not that I will die or that someone I love will die. That's a given. The worst that can happen is that I live a life that's so consumed with what could be that I miss out on what is. That I miss out on the sun shining in a blue sky. On my best friend skipping out on work to spend a day at a public pool drinking slushies. The thing about the worst-case scenario is that we don't know what it will be. When something awful happens, it can feel bad. It can feel like the worst thing ever until something worse happens. And the best that could happen is equally unknowable. It's equally unpredictable. We may not see it when it's happening. It may never happen at all. But just like those lists that I try to make... Most of life is right in the middle. Most of life, the result of most of our worries are just neither here nor there. Chelsea took that job, and it wasn't the best case scenario, and it wasn't the worst case scenario. It was both and. None of our worst cases came true after that day at the pool, and neither did our best ones. The hard things that hit us in the months after were totally not even on our radar. And the good things weren't either. Maybe because we didn't worry hard enough that day, maybe we worried too much. Or maybe we missed out on a perfect sunny day because we were anticipating a stormy future. I'm Nora McNerney, and this is terrible. Thanks for asking. You can find us online at TTFA.org or on Instagram at TTFA Podcast. My book, No Happy Endings, is on pre-order right now and comes out on March 26, 2019. Our senior producer is Hans Buto. Our assistant producer is Marcel Malikibu. Our project manager is Hannah Meekock-Ross. My current husband is Matthew Hart. He is very patient and kind, and I thank him for doing most of the work in our family and our relationship so I can write and fudge around on Instagram. I'm, I mean, write. I am writing. I'm writing, kids. Don't open my office door. <laughs> no. Uh, and, um, Joffrey! Joffrey did our theme music, Joffrey Lamar Wilson. He's a very talented dude. And we are a production of American Public Media.